Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys. Section 18. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 7. Capriel, Part 3. We had been told that in winter, when the lake was frozen and the ice not too thick, and in summer, on very calm days, the walls and roofs of one of the submerged villages might yet be seen, like the traditional towers of the drowned city of Lyonnais, far down below the surface of the water. An oven and a flight of stone steps, according to one of the young Pessies, were distinctly visible, to say nothing of other less creditable stories. At length, one delicious, idle, sunny afternoon, having nothing of importance to do elsewhere, we took a boat and went out upon the lake, just to test the truth of these traditions with our own eyes. Not a breath stirred when we started from Capriel, but by the time the boat was found and we were embarked in it, a light breeze had sprung up, and the whole surface of the water was in motion. Every moment the breeze freshened and the ripple grew stronger. The withered little old woman and the rosy-cheeked girl who were rowing bent to their oars and pulled with all their might but having crossed the debouchere of the river, declared themselves unable to pull us round the headland. The water by this time was quite rough, and we landed at the nearest point with difficulty. Scrambling up and along the bank for some distance, we came presently to a kind of little promontory, from whence, notwithstanding the roughness of the water, we could distinctly trace a long reach of wall, and some three or four square enclosures, evidently the substructures of several houses." "'If it had been smooth enough, and we could have rowed over yonder,' said the old woman, pointing towards a more distant reach, "'the signoras might have seen the houses with their roofs still on, and their chimneys standing. "'They are all there, deep, deep down.' "'Have you yourself seen them?' I asked. "'Seen them? Eh, hey, signora, I have seen them with these eyes hundreds of times. "'Dio mio! There are those in Olegi who have seen stranger sights than I.' There are those living who have seen the old parish church with his belfry, all perfect, out yonder in the middle of the lake where it is deep water. There are those living, here her voice dropped to an awe-struck whisper, who have heard the bells tolling under the water at midnight for the unburied dead. I have told the story of this little expedition out of its due place, in order to bring under one head all that I succeeded in gleaning at various times about the great Bergfall of 1771. It certainly did not come off till we had been established for some two or three weeks at Capriel, and had once or twice been absent upon distant excursions. Our first day at the Pezzi's was spent in strolling about the neighborhood, and seeing after mules. Also, in getting rid of the two Gedinas who were returning to Cortina with their horses, but not, if we could help it, with their side-saddle. How this delicate and difficult matter was at last negotiated matters little now. Enough that, being simple men with but few words at command, they were ultimately talked out of their convictions, and so departed, leaving the precious object behind them. We promised, of course, to pay for the hire of it. We promised to return it as soon as we succeeded in getting another. We promised everything possible and impossible, and were crowned with that success which is not always the rewards of virtue. "'The padre will be furious with us,' said the younger brother, somewhat ruefully, as he pocketed his buona mano and turned to leave the room. It occurred to me that this was highly probable, 
and the Gedina pair might not be altogether a pleasant person to deal with under those circumstances. The poor fellows went away with evident reluctance, followed by Giovanni and the mule. We watched them down the street, and only breathed freely when they were fairly out of sight. That same afternoon, having engaged the exclusive services of a local guide and a couple of mules for as long and as often as we might require them during our sojourn in these parts, we walked to the Col di Santa Lucia, a famous point of view in the neighboring Val di Fiorentino. Our way thither lay up yesterday's zigzag, a damp, muddy grove wriggling up the face of the steep hillside, about as pleasant to walk in as a marrow spoon and not much wider. Once we arrived at the top, we left the valley of Andres upon the left, and turned off towards the right, still, as yesterday, winding along the great pine slopes of Monte Frisolate, but following the eastward instead of the westward face of the mountain. It was uphill nearly all the way. Giuseppe, however, had provided two stout alpenstocks of his own cutting, and with this good help we pushed forward rapidly. The path lay half in shade and half in sunshine, commanding now a peep into the depths of the valley below, now a view of the great slide on the opposite shoulder of Monte Fernanza, and now a backward glimpse of the Civita seen above a crowd of intervening hilltops. Thus, at the end of a long pull of rather less than an hour and a half, we found ourselves some fifteen hundred feet above the level from which we had started, and close upon the Col di Santa Lucia, a curious saddle-backed hill like a lion couchant, keeping guard just at the curve of the Val Fiorentino. His neck is crested with a straggling line of Swiss-looking wooden houses, and his head is crowned by a picturesque little white church. He looks straight down towards the Pelmo, which closes the end of the valley magnificently, like a stupendous castle with twin towers reaching to the clouds. One would like to know what demigod piled those bastions, and why the lion crouched there, waiting forever to spring upon him, when he should venture out from his stronghold, and if he is still imprisoned in the heart of the mountain. But the answer to these questions would have to be sought in the cloudland of uncreated myths. Followed by all the children in the place, we made our way into the churchyard, and there, at the extreme end of the little promontory, sat upon the wall to enjoy the view. A glance at the map showed that the Impeso Thal lay just beyond the Pelmo, and that we were now looking at the mountain from exactly the reverse side. Seen from over yonder, it had resembled a mighty throne. From here, as I have said, it showed as two enormous towers, tawny against the deep blue of the sky. A little white cloud resting lightly against the top of the farthest tower looked like a flag of truce floating from the battlements. Farther to the left, the curved beak of the Antileo, like the prow of a Roman galley, peeped out, faint and distant, above a bank of gathering cumulus. The Val Fiorentino, green and sunny, and sprinkled with white villages, opened up like a beautiful avenue to the very foot of the Pelmo, while northward the valley of Cotolongo met the descending slopes of Monte Gisela, and showed a streak of winding path leading down from the path. Travellers who come that way from Cortina, instead of by the Tre Sassi, have a rugged and somewhat uninteresting road to climb, and, for the sake of this one view which can afterwards be so easily reached from Caprile, lose the scenery of the exquisite upper Val de Cordeval, perhaps the loveliest of all the Dolomite valleys.
Turning away at last from the view, we went in search of the house of the curé of Santa Lucia, upon the outer walls of which, as the story goes, there once existed a fresco by Titian. Painted, it was said, in return for the hospitality with which he was entertained there when weather-bound in winter on his way to Venice. Schaubach tells us how it represented death with his Sith, surrounded by symbols of earthly vanity, and furthermore adds that, having been barbarously whitewashed by some parocco of the last century, it was with difficulty recovered. Where, however, Mr. Ball and Mr. Gilbert had, as they tell us, both failed, the present writer could scarcely hope for success. A carved stemna, or coat of arms, over a side door was all that the parsonage had to show, and no trace of the fresco was anywhere discernible. I shall not soon forget that evening walk back to Capriel, the golden splendor of the sky, the sweet scent of the new-mown hay. Neither shall I forget the two tired pedestrians, all knapsacks, beards, and knickerbockers, making for Capriel, nor the shy little maid in the iron-spiked shoes, timid and silent, keeping goats by the path-side, nor the goats themselves, who had no mauvaise honte, and were almost too friendly, nor, above all, that wonderful rose-coloured vision that broke upon us as we turned down again into the valley, that vision of the civita, looking more than ever like a mighty organ, with its million pipes all gilded in the light of the sunset. The sky above was all light, the wooded hills below were all shade. Monte Pesa, soaring out from a mist of purple haze, caught the rich glow upon its rocky summit. Capriel nestled snugly down in the hollow. The little village of Rocca, high on a green plateau, lifted its slender campanile against the horizon, while yet farther away a couple of tender gray peaks, like hooded nuns, looked up to the eastern sky, as if waiting for the evening star to rise. Then the rose-color paled upon the lower crags, and the radiant cloud-wreath hovering midway across the face of the civita like an amber and golden scarf, turned gray and ghost-like. A few moments more, and the last flush faded. The sky turned a tender greenish-gray, flecked with golden films. The birds became silent in their nests. The grasshoppers burst into a shrill chorus. The torrent, steel-colored now, with here and there a gleam of silver, rushed on, singing a wild song and eager for the sea. Presently a feeble old peasant came across the pine-trunk bridge, staggering under a load of hay that left only his legs visible, and was followed by his wife, a brisk old woman with five hats piled upon her head, one on top of another, and a sheaf of rakes and siths under her arm. So we lingered spellbound, till at last the gloaming came and drove us homeward. Some hours later the clouds that we had seen gathering about the Antileo came up, bringing with them rain and heavy thunder, whereupon the ringers got up and rang the church bells all night long while the storm lasted. End of section 18